Welcome back to Mastering Retail, an e-commerce masterclass covering succeeding in the world of digital commerce brought to you by Flywheel Digital. This is part two of our coverage of Southeast Asia in our e-commerce and APAC series. And today, Jasper Nobin, CEO of Intrepid, will be teaching us about how e-commerce varies across the East and the West with a focus on the Southeast Asia region. I'm your host, Emma Irwin, and I'm a senior editor and specialist at Flywheel Digital. In this episode, we're getting a bit more technical, a bit micro when it comes to e-commerce in Southeast Asia. Think 1P versus 3P, media, path to purchase, super apps, and overall management of all of the moving pieces. And of course, you'll hear about what's been on Jasper's digital wish list, which we hinted at in part one at the end of this episode. First, I wanted to understand the marketplace dynamics in terms of 1P and 3P share, because a lot of your winning tactics as a brand have to do with understanding your competition and how that competition gets products to the end consumer. In the US, the majority of sales on Amazon come from 1P accounts. We've learned in this season that in China, that's not necessarily the same case. So what about Southeast Asia? Amazon has always driven a 1P first strategy, wanting to be the, the, the seller of choice for all the main categories. I think in Southeast Asia, we've seen over the years, a shift in strategy from both Lazada and Shopee. Uh, but in general, if you boil it down, there's only a few categories which, which make sense for them to do in the 1P model long-term. And that is mother and baby products, so diapers, milk formula, because they want to lock in the, the, the young moms, which are fantastic lifetime value consumers to have on your platform. And some key electronics products, which uh, where supply, securing supply of the new latest popular launches is a key consideration or groceries where just the shipping costs are prohibitive unless you you build a basket that you can deliver from one warehouse. Outside of that, I think it's more uh, it's it's a choice, but but we see that there's a tendency to move more to the marketplace model, the 3P model, and that that is that trend is actually driven by both sides that it's the marketplace is looking for a leaner and less capital intensive operating model and the brand seeking to move closer to a D2C model, regain control, getting more information on consumers and having more ownership of the four Ps on assortment, on price, on how they promote which products, etc. So we're definitely a push towards the, the 3P model, I'd say. Is that more profitable for a Lazada or a Shopee in the long term or maybe profitable working more so with the 3P kind of environment? Is that a path to profitability? <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's it's ultimately a philosophy, a philosophical question is what what do you see as the model of a marketplace? Whereas I think in, in, in the Asian world, it's very much a platform that facilitates trade more so than being an online retailer. And I think that's that's more what drives it. In the early days, Due to the intense competition, I think in, in the West, Amazon has had a, a very strong market share, very strong position, and also lowest price guarantee at some point. I think in, in Asia, marketplaces have subsidized products in retail in the 1P model, incurred losses uh, there to, to woo consumers and, and tie them to their platform. That is ultimately not sustainable in the long run. But I think that there would be a profitable model in in both 1P and 3P. I think it's more um, it's more philosophical 
conviction that a marketplace ultimately should be a, a platform. This has me thinking about in terms of like ad revenue, we know Amazon in the retail slash media environment makes most of their money from ad revenue rather than the actual transactional things happening in the retail side of things. Is that similar in Southeast Asia on Lazada and Shopee in terms of like ad revenue really being what backs the business and drives kind of growth? Yeah, very much so. Similar things, paid search ads, uh, other exposure ads, affiliate marketing, driving traffic to a marketplace. A couple maybe of interesting local flavors is that in the early days, there were so-called barter mechanics where uh, for a... So the mega campaigns in Southeast Asia are different from, uh, let's say, Christmas and Black Friday in, in, in the US. So we have um, 99, 10-10. There's a lot of double-double campaigns with 11-11 or Singles Day, which is also huge in China, obviously, being the, the biggest day of the year, where if you have a strong campaign, you can easily hit one month or one and a half or two months even equivalent of revenue on a single day. So that's a, that's a hugely important um, day on the calendar. So the platforms would auction exposure packages on their app and as a brand you would submit your barter package basically saying okay i'm going to feature you in these market i'm going to drive this much traffic to your platform i'm going to give you these special deals i'm going to feature you in some of our advertising on our channels in this and this way the the marketplaces would value that barter offer in a way by a third party independent agency based on who which brand had the highest barter package they would get a, a silver a gold or a platinum exposure package on the on the platform during these mega campaign days so i think that is ultimately moving more to a, a monetary uh, system but that's definitely a local a local flavor from the the earlier days and i think quite interesting you had CPAS, Facebook CPAS, basically a collaboration between the marketplaces and Facebook where it would be a tri-party marketing account, a Facebook account where the marketplace would bring in anonymized audiences and as a brand you could retarget uh, people who bought something from you on Lazada or Shopee, different ways of retargeting consumers on Facebook through through leveraging the audience data from the platform. It works very similar compared to uh, either Amazon or Alimama in China. Interesting. Thank you for explaining that. Paid search has me thinking about and something you also talked about earlier and we heard Amber talking about is how shopping on these platforms is very much more brand focused than it is kind of over here. We, you know, you go to Amazon, you search for a product, click the product, and then you're on the product detail page and that's kind of where you make the purchase from. Brand is you almost always irrelevant i would i would say like that's not what you're there for you're there for product not brand but how does that kind of look in southeast asia yeah it's a bit of a mixed bag to be honest if you look at the consumer behaviors i think the vast majority would would still go through the search bar if you look at where does the vast majority of online sales originate it's mobile app and on mobile app it's the search bar However, if you look at the anatomy of the, the apps, both Lazada and Shopee, 
they're very comprehensive with a marketplace section and a mall section, but even like a luxury pavilion or uh, it's it's very much the the Chinese uh, style. So you have Tmall uh, as the branded part, you have Taobao as a separate app for more marketplace goods. In Southeast Asia, this is all clubbed together in one app. And on those apps, especially in the mall section, you have stores. So a store is a seller store. Um, but also branded stores. All the um, all the large consumer brands have their their flagship store, their official store, on Lazada, Shopee, etc., which are full-fledged pages with navigation buttons, banners, promotions, um, etc. So it's uh, the, the store. Yeah, there is definitely more a store focus and a brand level focus, and I think that. That has to do with the the difference also between East and West in what consumers use the app for, right? This, as you say, in 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 the in the West, it's the short. Amazon is is designed around uh, the shortest path to purchase. It's really like there's a buy box. I search. There's a buy box. If I if I go very crazy, I can check out the other sellers. But that's crazy. <laughs> as wild crazy. as it gets, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. In Asia, there's a, there's a gazillion sellers often selling the same product, but the apps itself are, are a lot more around exploration, discovery, where consumers would browse through. I mean, there's a pretty powerful personalization algorithm behind both platforms. I think Lazada being backed by uh, Alibaba has the most sophisticated tech. So based on your previous searches, the algorithm will recommend you products that might be relevant or interesting for you. And I think that puts a lot of people on a browsing and exploration behavior. Then you've got things like live streaming on the app. You have gamification through gamification. There's actual games on the app, which you can use to earn points, credits for further discounts or other things. And then often the, the the promo mechanics also get quite complex in a way to really make it an, an, an effort for people like which vouchers can I stack, which promo mechanics can I combine to get the best deal that's becoming sort of a, a sport in itself. So we just followed my brain from 1P versus 3P to ad revenue and paid search to path to purchase and product discovery. It's not very often in these episodes that we actually follow the path written by my brain on the spot. That train of thought seemed to flow nicely and teach us about elements across both retail and media. Pat on the back to myself. Moving on. Something we really need to address is mobile penetration in Southeast Asia and the prominence of mobile interfaces and apps. Obviously, mobile penetration in the United States is incredibly high, right? But a lot of people still pursue a lot of entertainment and shopping-related actions on their desktops rather than their phones. And super apps? Please, we're not really there yet over here. So let's look at this from the Southeast Asia lens. In a couple of ways, I think, I don't remember the, the exact number, but I think mobile penetration is high. It's like 1.8. So basically, on average, people have more than one phone. And that's across, you can go extremely rural and... Of course, that number is within certain age brackets and, and the typical uh, metric, right? Not total population. But smartphones are ubiquitous. And for many people, Facebook and the e-commerce apps are almost, they, they define what 
online is for them. They they hardly use Google and go to websites, etc. It's really uh, a mobile app driven um, experience of the internet, which is the starting point typically. And in terms of what that means that the apps are very popular. From a brand perspective, one of the challenges that it, uh, it, it brings is that usually e-commerce content, product content of a lot of brands is still developed for a desktop world. So it's text heavy, whereas in Southeast Asia, people love like image heavy, very engaging uh, visual product content, which needs to be mobile friendly. So a lot of brands work on localized product content to fit the mobile formats, to feature local faces, local models, make it locally relevant. We know on Amazon or Walmart that having mobile-friendly images created and uploaded can make or break the shopping experience too. But the localization element is nowhere near as developed over here. We've learned that the interface of a marketplace in the East is going to have more going on than Western Amazon with elements such as live streams and gamification and colors and visuals, etc. But could you imagine uploading relevant assets to all of those places and making sure you've sourced local faces to be shown to different regions? In the US, we're just beginning to think about uploading different product content for a marketplace like Amazon Mexico, let alone different content by state or zip code or town. That's a lot to keep track of. So let's now dig into super apps. Gojek in Indonesia was the first true super app in this part of the world where think of it as a as an app with an, a ton of icons within the app and all different services and it was literally from i'm sitting at home and i want i'm watching something on tv and i want popcorn you can order a driver to drive to the nearest 7-eleven buy a popcorn and deliver it to your house in the next 15 minutes uh, or i want a massage there was a dedicated button a masseuse <laughs> should come to my house in the next 30 minutes like from taxi to uh, all these type of services to insurance products to loans to whatever there's often a very strong financial services component to it and i think that that's that's the original concept food delivery obviously so all the restaurants and I think you still have Grab and Gojek as the two main super apps in the region. Having said that, the, the marketplaces, the commerce apps are obviously also trying to expand on their turf. So I think one of the, the so insurance is, is maybe the next step out, but in terms of, of financial services, the buy now, pay later option is increasingly uh, popular. I think it's really a big deal across Southeast Asia. Yeah, and other than that, I, I think it's more the, a super app and not in the true sense of the word, but the marketplaces are very diverse. There are different sections in the app for different parts. There is a, a groceries dedicated um, section. There is a mall section. There's all sorts of thematic sections uh, for sports, for luxury, etc. Crazy. What a concept. Maybe one day we'll have something like that over here and I'll get to experience I, honest, honestly, I think China is is way more advanced in this regard than Southeast Asia. If anything, it's quite an interesting one when Alibaba took over Lazada. I think they really accelerated the rollout of tech features, trying to get basically a competitive edge in Southeast Asia by leveraging their, their tech prowess in China. But there you saw that consumer adoption and the behaviors of the consumers it takes time to educate the consumer and to really embed behaviors and it was you really need to there needs to be um, a pull factor from the consumer rather than just push a lot of sophisticated features because it, it's 
is difficult. Uh, it gets too complex very quickly if you bring WeChat full features to a country which has not been on that evolutionary path for years. People would not know how to use it, right? Sure. I don't even know if I'd be able to use WeChat. Well, I'd be like an old person. What I would joke is like my grandma trying to use an app if I had access and really saw how WeChat operates and everything. What are the different elements in relation to apps that you have to manage? Yeah, so I think, again, right, if, if you compare life on the one piece side on Amazon is you have one marketplace with a, a huge market share where as long as you provide your product data and you you ship your, your products to Amazon in the one P model and you employ a partner who runs the marketing for you, then you're, you're good to go. If you look at Southeast Asia, I shared earlier, the content needs to be different. Unfortunately, it's an it's much more of an omni-channel landscape with more platforms, more channels that you need to master that all require content in different formats. Of course, of course. it should not be too easy. Yeah? You make it specific. There's this entire brand level side to it where you have your official stores, where you have campaign pages, and it, it just requires a ton more activation, marketing strategy, uh, content, banners on the platform that that the brands through partners like us have to create, but also how consumers want to interact with you as a brand. I mean, on Amazon, you, you have a contact email or you can call con consumer care, things like this. But in Southeast Asia, people love to chat and you want to chat not with the marketplace because the marketplace is a platform. Uh, so you chat with the brand. And when you chat with the brand, that is, I mean, our operating hours are uh, seven days a week, morning, 8 a.m. to evening, 10 p.m., something like this, where consumers can ask questions which range from, when is a great promotion coming up on that product that I love to, hey, if I buy today, when can I deliver this product? Or I, it looks like it's out of stock. When is it in stock? Those are the more, more basic questions. But that really evolves, I would say, into uh, online promoters or beauty advisors. Like I'm looking for, for example, I'm looking for a sophisticated vacuum cleaner, which model would be the best fit for me? Or, hey, I have this and this skin type. I'm looking for beauty product or skincare product. Please advise me what's the best fit for me. Like those type of interactions all take place via chat. And that's obviously quite, um, quite a handful to manage. So I think those are some of the key strategic uh, things that, that you need to do. And when you have the ability to use something like a chat function, does that mean that kind of the written content on a product page is less important or because I think we rely so heavily on the written content on the page and the visual content, but like chat is not really an option. Sometimes some Shopify stores have like a chat feature, but not Amazon. That's a great question. So what we do is when when we see that a consumer asks a question that could or should have been captured in the product content that means that the product content is incomplete right so we have a, a feedback loop and we would upgrade the product content to answer the faqs that we get via chat so i think product content still matters a lot but if you look at the consumer behavior also also in china uh, where the time spent by consumers on product pages 
in e-commerce has reduced a lot. I think by something like seven seventy percent over the last couple of years. So this this strongly suggests that consumers are doing their their homework before they get to the. I mean, again, this will differ per product category, but they they do their homework either elsewhere or indeed through different channels and reading the the product page so wh- why is is content still super important and will always remain super important that's also because the ranking of the product is determined by an algorithm and in order to score well if someone searches for your product you need to optimize the content to make sure that um, the product ranks highly that was a solid answer Glad. I said I asked Thank a question you. where you said that's a good question, which means that I've done something. <laughs> I've done something correctly. You asked many good <laughs> questions. I'm trying I'm trying my best. And with that, you hopefully now have a better understanding of some of the more technical and tactical elements of e-commerce in Southeast Asia from not only a consumer behavior perspective, but a retail one too. To wrap us up, I asked Jasper for his key pieces of advice for large multinational but primarily based in the West enterprise corporations looking to enter and win in e-commerce in Southeast Asia. If you're a new Western brand wanting to penetrate Southeast Asia in in e-commerce, I think it's important to understand that even though on paper it's one big market of 600 million people, it's really six different countries, four different languages, distinct different cultures with different consumer preferences, and that fragmentation both on geographical level plus then in each country, different channels, different marketplaces, really makes it quite inefficient, I would say, to to manage. It's still early days. There's so much growth in the market still to come. But sometimes brands think it is, I won't say that China is easy. China is an extremely competitive market. But if you crack it, it's a a 1 billion plus consumers market with a very few platforms, right? So the efficiencies of scale that you have there are much harder to obtain in Southeast Asia. So you need to work with partners who can solve that complexity for you. But you also need to be committed to, to the region and drive the investment to reach scale in that fragmentation. Otherwise, it's going to be very, very difficult. Perfect. Okay, we're coming back to the digital wish list, something that you just won't actually purchase. And why? Gotta check. This is also a funny bug by Lazada, by the way. The wish list is always empty the first time you click on it, only the second time it shows you all Interesting. the stuff that is there. Uh, same thing, another present for my kid, a treasure chest for my son. <laughs> Love it, but will you actually purchase it? Probably, yeah. Okay. We usually, sometimes we get, so, <laughs> Amber said Centauri whiskey, so she won't purchase it, but because, you know, she's pregnant and that's, she'll purchase it later. Sometimes people, they're usually things that are really expensive and that's why people won't purchase them. They just like fantasize that they can have them. Like we've had someone with a VR headset that was like $2,000 and they're like, well, I won't purchase it because it's $2,000, but I want it. Those are Usually those type of things are like a car that you have in a tab online. I mean, I'm very happily hunting for, for a sailboat, but a sailing boat is not something you buy on <laughs> Lazada or Shopee, right? So that, that would be <laughs> my not. online shopping and browsing for over a year already without making that purchase. But uh, fair enough. We'll I'm count not sure that. that qualifies. I'll count it so that you don't have to keep thinking a sailboat. A sailboat. 
That wraps up our part two of our exploration into e-commerce in Southeast Asia as part of our larger e-commerce across APAC season. Thank you to Jasper for his knowledge and insights, and be sure to listen to all of the other episodes in this season for the full story. If you've been enjoying these, please let us know so that we can gauge interest on even deeper dives into these marketplaces and behaviors. And please rate and review this episode and share it with your colleagues. I'm Emma Irwin, and this episode was produced by Klaus Cancel with sound design from Enos Atenji. See you next time.